Hey there, constant listeners. I know you're busy reading the next book in our journey, Dolores Claiborne, and you're probably even revisiting The Stand. But here's some good news. King has a new book, not just any book, a collection of four novellas. One involves a rat, one follows a man who contains multitudes, one surrounds a phone with an afterlife, and another includes one of your favorite King characters, Holly Gibney. It's called If It Bleeds, and like different seasons and four past midnight, these stories will take you to intriguing and frightening places and give you one good scare. If It Bleeds by Stephen King, available now wherever books are sold. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. constant listeners and welcome yet again to the losers club a stephen king podcast and the only podcast to spend two episodes discussing a (laughs) 1991 miniseries that nobody remembers (laughs) i am your host dr rockin randall todd hunter and who is joining me uh from across chicago well this would be michael bill raymond as dr richard (laughs) todd hunter rothman (laughs) Uh, you forgot brave the in the storm that is both uh, <laughs> literally outside and uh, in our minds because God was this second half a storm of ideas. So yes, I will say uh, if you hear any rain or thunder in the background, Mike and I are in Chicago where it is currently storming like the Dickens. So yeah. that's what that sound is. Maybe it'll give things a, a spooky ambiance. That I, I hope think. so. Yeah, it's like the Earth itself is mad at this miniseries. <laughs> And uh, who is that joining us from Nashville? Hi, this is Jen Gina or Bunny McDougal Adams <laughs> from Nashville. <laughs> nice, nice. Love it. And I say Bunny McDougal because I will always know Frances Sternhagen as Bunny McDougal from Sex and the City. And I love her. Nice. Yeah, yeah love we, we, we chatted about her. Do you know her King Bonafides? I do. Yeah, yeah. She read Dolores Claiborne. And she also reads Grandma, which is a short story in Dolores um, Skeleton Crew. Nice, oh, nice. Yeah. Wait, wait. Yeah, for, for Skeleton Crew, the audiobook, did they do different authors for every story? Um, I don't think it's different one for every story, but I think that one is split up into little like four part, um, like little audio ets or That's whatever. So cool. Like there would be four or five stories. It is really cool. Yeah, I think um, they got a lot more big names for nightmares and dreamscapes but they did do that for um some of the ones in skeleton crew although it's been a while so i can't remember right offhand i I will say i am just hoping and crossing my fingers that this see this summer's anthology series that we read nightmares and dreamscapes is at least better than four past midnight last year (laughs) last summer that was kind of a downer uh oh yeah it's much better i love nightmares and dreamscapes okay it's a little bonkers but it's got some solid stories in it yeah, I've, yeah I've we're seen... gearing up for that. And then uh, we're also 
preparing for Dolores, Dolores Claiborne, which is coming up uh, pretty soon. I think in two weeks yeah. um, or three weeks. Uh, we're, we're mapping out the schedule still. But uh, yeah, so we're getting that going. Next week, we're going to be back with our breakdown of The Stand Part 4, our final episode on our Great Stand rewatch inspired by COVID-19. And also, um, we're going to be doing some If It Bleeds content. If It Bleeds is the new collection of novellas by Stephen King. And we're going to have an episode on that, breaking down our thoughts on the four stories in there. Spoiler free, I think, for the most part. We'll probably do a little spoiler section Mm -hmm. uh, to discuss some other parts. But um, yeah, before we dive in, this is part two of our two-part series on Golden Years, the 1991 miniseries um, written by Stephen King and directed by a lot of other guys. Uh, Nobody of note. No, that's mean. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, but uh, before we get going, we do just want to say that uh, this is a free episode, but every other week we are releasing full episodes that are exclusive to our Patreon uh, uh, subscribers. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash the Barons. You can also find info about it on our social media. And basically, uh, we've got mi- exclusive minisodes. We've got merch. We've got uh, full episodes breaking things down, like our stand miniseries uh, uh, breakdown. And so lots of fun stuff. So you can get that info there. But, uh, you know, Golden Years, it's just too important. We couldn't put that behind the paywall. <laughs> but, but Randall, gotta- what? W- what makes May special? And you'll probably notice because you heard the ad at the beginning of this episode. Um, this whole month is sponsored by If It Bleeds. Uh, ah, so, yeah. you, you know, I know that there are some constant listeners out there. They're a little upset that they're only getting an episode every two weeks in the, free, you know, in the in the free zone, the Boulder free zone. That's what we can call our, <laughs> our, our main feed, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's actually not that bad. I think that's I want to go yeah. with that. Um, but there are some people upset. But guess what? You don't have to be upset in May. The month of May, to quote the uh, Arcade Fire, uh, is going to be uh, free content uh, from us week to week again because we are sponsored exclusively um, by uh, Simon Schuster for If It Bleeds, which you can get in stores right now. And you're going to hear our ads uh, throughout uh, this episode and the next three that are coming this month. So uh, that's my little plug there. Uh, but uh, We will, can- though, just to be clear, we will be doing free episodes every week, but we also will have two yes. Patreon-exclusive episodes yeah. as well, as well as our mini-sodes. So lots yeah. of content in May. So, so uh, much content. It's which is insane. good since we're all still locked down and uh, you need something to do. So yeah. just don't watch Golden Years. Just listen to us. So, <laughs> yeah. so man, uh, this is wild. I think we'll start because Mac was on the last episode. Uh, I think he you know, ran afoul of Dr. Todd Hunter and uh, <laughs> couldn't make it on this week's episode. But we have Jen from the Horror Virgin here, which we are excited about. And Jen caught yeah. up on the entire series for us, which, uh, man, do we appreciate that. And yeah. what, what a sacrifice. <laughs> so why don't you give us your thoughts on uh, the first half, uh, which we discussed last week. So what was your reaction when you sat down for this? And what was uh, how familiar were you with Golden Years before coming into this? So I knew Golden Years existed and I probably watched a little bit of it. But I think the whole time I was thinking it was Kingdom Hospital because ah. I think I watched more of that. And so I was watching this and I was like, what the hell is going on? I didn't really remember anything about it. Um, and I may have watched a little bit of it back then and then just immediately given up on it because, wow, that first half <laughs> is so boring. I feel like I lived an entire lifetime and then went backwards an entire lifetime <laughs> while I was watching the first half. And I was actually, I thought that... Um, 
it was like a two-part miniseries, and I thought I was going to be talking about the second episode. So I watched the first episode, and I was like, okay. And then I noticed that there were still five hours left. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> I was like, oh, no, we're talking about the second half. So I powered through like four hours of this thing in the last couple of days. And so it's uh, it was golden, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's I did the entirety of... Um of the second half, which was about three hours on on uh, on Saturday afternoon, and who boy, what a way to spend a Saturday Ooh. afternoon in quarantine. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but you did you watch it on YouTube? I did watch it on YouTube. Yeah, and so I was watching it, and it was it was hard to tell what was bad looking and what was bad because it was on YouTube, like kind of a bootleg thing. Um, sure, but it just it feels like high school sets. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, as, yeah, we as someone who the, bought the DVD a couple years ago, and I and I've thought about this recently. I might be the only person that owns this DVD. Um, not sure about that, but uh, holding the DVD the other day and just looking at the back of it, I was like, am I the only person that's ever looked at this while sitting in their own living room? I don't know. But um, I will say it still looks bad on the DVD, and uh, I have the different mm. ending uh, and the different cut. Um, so I'll be talking a little bit about that as I did uh, you know, in the last episode. Um, but oh boy, uh, I did go back uh, today. Ooh. I did get to finish all the YouTube cut, but there's a lot that you all got to see that I didn't in that uh, initial run. So yeah, so Mike's DVD is cut down significantly because he was texting me as he was watching it uh, last night, and like I was like quoting some scenes at him, and he's like, "Wait, I didn't have that." And then I was yeah. like, "I was like, a you were spared, but b there were a few very <laughs> cuckoo moments that I wish you could have mm. seen." Um, yeah, especially, it's yeah. just insane and it's like the first half is so boring mm-hmm. and the second half is not any better but at least it does interesting things you know yeah you, you know it's one thing I noticed about this second half that's very similar um, to another book that's definitely connected to this I felt the second half is pretty much just like Firestarter um, yeah mm-hmm. when you really think about it like it's it's almost as if like he had this idea or he had multiple ideas because as we talked about in the first episode, I, I feel like these, you know, this was initially conceived as a novel. Um, although I feel like once it became uh, clear that this is going to be a television show, Stephen was like, well, what other ideas do I have in my uh, desk? Uh, mm-hmm. Let me weld it to this and that and this, which is why it feels like there's like four different stories going on with all different tones. Um, and the second story, like the second half here just feels as if he's kind of just doing like beat for beat, the same shit that he did with Firestarter, but with just like psychedelic results. I mean, just yeah. the places they and go to in this is insane. And I feel like it would keep, I feel like though, if, cause this, you know, as we discussed in the last episode, we talked a lot about the history. If you, for some reason are listening to part two of golden years and not part one, <laughs> we talked a lot about uh, the history of the show, kind of, um, you know, how it started, where it started. And we talked about the first half of the plot and I'll break, we'll break down kind of what happened in the second half as well. But, uh, but this wasn't where it was supposed to end. Uh, there was, it was supposed to end on a cliffhanger and, uh, King had a whole other season in mind. And basically when, yeah, when the network turned it down, he asked for four hours to wrap it up. So he had four more hours of story. And so when you say it resembles Firestarter, Mike, I think you're totally right. And I think that 
if we had gotten those four extra hours or this whole other season, uh, Harlan probably would have ended up in the shop, just like how Charlie mm-hmm. ends up in the shop mm, at the end yeah. of Firestarter. I think that's what we are robbed of here because uh, the cliffhanger <laughs> does end with uh, him getting captured uh, rather than the ending mm. that we'll get to. <laughs> Yeah, in a bit, it just yeah. feel like so it weird. was like it. Ru- the ending, what did feel rushed? Like I remember, I noticed there was ten minutes left, and it still felt like we were in the middle of the story. So that, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Randall, God, Randall put it really more. well to me when it, it's like a Simpsons episode. I'll let you go off on it, Randall, because this is just a brilliant <laughs> distillation of exactly what this fucking ending is. Um, when we get there, when we get there, I'll discuss <laughs> it. It's 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 it, it it fits though. But yeah, so basically. Um, I'll, we'll start from where we left off, which was with uh, basically Harlan and his wife, um, Gina, basically. So he's de-aging because of this project led by the maniacal Dr. Todd Hunter, uh, and which is the name that we joked about last time. Sounds like a Grey's Anatomy character, but that's just his last mm-hmm. name. Um, so I think we, we, we started calling him Dr. X because his middle, his middle yeah. initial was X. And so um, he's de-aging. Basically, the shop, which is sort of a government operative black ops sort of thing, come in and they are they basically just want to eliminate anyone involved with the test. And that includes Harlan. So Harlan goes on the run with the help of the security uh, expert from the lab where all of this happened, played by Felicity Huffman. I believe her name character's name is Terry. And so she, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically is like, I can't allow this to happen. And she knows uh, the shop's operative, this guy Andrews, Jude Andrews, uh, quite a character, and he, <laughs> she knows him from way back when he used to just decapitate people, which is a scene that I still can't believe happened, and I remember yeah. as if it were a nightmare, and uh, <laughs> and basically uh, she's like, I won't let this happen, so she agrees to shepherd them off as he's de-aging, Gina obviously staying the same age, and we discussed a lot about the thematic potential of that sort of idea, and we'll talk a little mm-hmm. bit about how that character out here just the general idea of a relationship in which one person is growing younger and the other stays the same age uh, meanwhile we have Ed Lauder great character actor we talked a lot about him last episode uh, playing General Cruz um, or Major Cruz I don't know what his rank is and uh, basically he is has a big thing for Terry and he also wants to contain the situation but also doesn't want to kill Harlan and uh, and then we also have Dr. Ackerman played by the guy from Ghostbusters in the library who um, <laughs> who probably had my favorite scene in the last one which was the scene between him and uh, Andrews where he makes him breakfast and stuff and uh, oh, he's breakfast very with Andrews yeah. yeah that was a great yeah, scene what a power scene. move man yeah <laughs> and so that scene was cool and basically Ackerman is like terrified that he's going to uh, be eliminated for his knowledge about the situation and he is <laughs> At the yeah. beginning of <laughs> at the beginning of this uh, part two, so that's where we'll start. Basically, Andrews uh, is playing cleanup. He gets he kills the optometrist that like uh, basically saw that Harlan's sight was getting better. Uh, he kills that journalist who was on who was like from the fifties or something. <laughs> yeah, played by, played by Pascal. Yeah, and uh, and then he also kills Ackerman by blowing up his car. And what I thought was funny was that he blew up his car, but was like in the parking lot to watch it happen. Um, yeah, mm. you'd think you would not want to be near the scene, but um, no, maybe I, if I guess he's good, just making sure. If he was sure like a good henchman, he wouldn't be near the scene at all. But you know, mm-hmm. speaking uh, of henchmen, he gets a new henchman in Eric King. Uh, I don't remember the character's name, Barnes, maybe or something. Burton, uh, it's Burton. So Burton, yeah, okay, Burton. Yeah. So mm-hmm. 
he gets this new guy who shows up and uh, he seems really incompetent, but he's like his shop operative friend. Uh, He shows up to man things at the lab uh, by mainly just taking a lot of phone calls. We'll talk about those later. And (laughs) basically he heads off on the road uh, to try to track down Harlan and Gina and Terry. Meanwhile, Harlan, Gina and Terry are hanging out on this ranch um, and basically planning for the future we get a lot of different plans going on i i remarked to mike about how much yeah like how much time they spent talking about going to the mall and getting arrested so they could be arrested by local authorities rather than by the fbi and then that plan Mm. is just scrapped and then um (laughs) and then uh basically they end up in a commune with hippies um and one of the one of them is a sailor named uh, Captain Trips. Captain Trips. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Who and, is uh, so on the, the nose. worst. Uh. Yeah, that's like, I mean, I, that's like a character you would have seen in the Dark Tower adaptation. And uh, mm-hmm. and then, and then um, but then basically they're found out at the hippie commune. Andrew shows up, uh, chaos ensues, and in the tacked on ending that they made for TV when they realized there wasn't going to be another season, basically, uh, <laughs> this is where I'll talk about uh. my analogy, Mike. And uh, so basically, like Gina and Harlan are like holding each other, uh, and she's very sick, and it seems like she's dying, and he basically just holds her, and then he glows green. And then they just disappear into somewhere. <laughs> and I was saying to Mike that it was a lot like the Poochie uh, bit from Simpsons. <laughs> where my he's like, needs I'm, me. I must I'm, go now. My planet needs me. I must go now. And then he just flies uh. off into the air, which is one way of doing things. And then uh, uh, t- uh, Terry shoots uh, Andrews and kills him. But not before he touches the green light that surrounds mm-hmm. them and goes like, ah, he makes like the funniest <laughs> sound. And then... Um, and then uh, Crew shows up dressed like a hippie, and her and him are in love now, apparently. And uh, and sh- they're really happy, even though these two people just vanished before their eyes, and there's dead right. people everywhere. And uh, that's pretty much it. Whereas so Dr. I, Todd I, Hunter has a, whole, has a whole side story that they never really resolve, where he's basically conducting his tests again uh, with the help of the disabled janitor that worked with um harlan and they basically figure out the key to making his project work but then that's the end of that story so. <laughs> which is so i have a lot of questions one the main mm-hmm. question i have is based on the production of this episode they, they so cbs denied king four hours but did they allow him to reshoots do reshoots which is why that one last scene they had a a reconfigured ending now it's like I know that they did a lot of different uh, endings and different international pilots around this time period for television. Cause I mean, you could go back to twin peaks and like the pilot is like, they have like three different cuts for the pilot. And one of them was an international pilot, which pretty much wraps up everything at the end um, in a weird yeah, way. That's the way, first one I, I saw. Yeah. Which is wild. Um, but like with this, did they do something that was very poochy esque where they like literally manipulate the footage? Cause it could have been easily done that way because you could have had just them freeze frame. They glow green and then they disappear. And it's odd that Andrews, when he shot, he's literally talking and being like, Oh God. Like he says one last line and then falls. So you, you gotta you, be kidding me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and you wonder like, cause I, you know, Andrews wasn't supposed to die there. He was supposed to live on for like whatever next season they had conceived of, of this bastardized show. And so I wondered, like, did they just manipulate the footage to make it look like more of a 
you know, like a, a death for him? I mean, did they go back to the set, like call up all the, the actors and be like, look, we didn't get another season, but let's go back to the desert or wherever the fuck that we shot this last scene and <laughs> film this last segment again? I, it's weird. I think I mean, they had to have, like, because the, the section with, like, the stuff with her and, and Ed Lauder is, like, so forced. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, like, that stuff was clearly reshot. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to, like, rewatch the footage and see how it's framed and everything. But, like, I, I feel like they definitely could have been like, ah, we don't need Harlan and Gina because we can just have them holding each other and make them disappear. <laughs> right? You know? So my, my next question to is, green out. is it, you know, Ed Lauder, the late Ed Lauder, uh, who's also the late uh, Artie Call, as we discussed in the last episode. They're probably up in heaven having a drink together. Um, <laughs> Ed Lauder appeared in 200 films in his yeah. 40 years. When he runs dressed up as a hippie towards Terry <laughs> at the end there, is that the mm-hmm. lowest point in his career? It's got to be. It's got to yeah. be. The first and why moment did they run saw, through uh, the fucking puddle when they could have just walked around the puddle? That <laughs> drove me insane. <laughs> Also, what set dressing was this? Did they run out of budget and they're like, hey, um, there's a place where they take out the um, CBS garbage outside of town. Let's go Mm -hmm. film there. Yeah, it's like they walked through a tunnel or a drain pipe and then they were at the beach somewhere. I'm sorry, the beach in quotation marks. It reminded me of like the outside of Biodome with like, you know, (laughs) with Pauly Shore and... um, Stephen Baldwin, I think. Stephen it, yeah. Baldwin. It, it reminded me of like the barren wastelands that are outside of the biodome. It's like, where are we? Like they were at a mm-hmm. hippie commune. Why are we at a fucking random like base reservoir where like Hulk would fight or something like that? Uh- it, it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> and she's suddenly dressed like they're in Hawaii, which yes. fits with the beach motif, you know. But it's he's so still weird. in his hippie costume. The hippie it costume is was so strange. Like I feel like I, I feel like I blacked out or something and like just <laughs> came to and suddenly he was in the hippie costume like i don't i i I, my brain does not register the moment when that like discussion was had where he's like i'm gonna dress up like a hippie now like i don't (laughs) remember that i just remember like i blinked and then suddenly he was in the hippie costume and i was like what is happening Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i think he was just trying to impress felicity huffman you know Probably. This is, like, this I still is, think I'm young and cool. It is so baffling that, like, in early 1991, King's like, all right, a hippie commune. Like, this is going to be a thing. Like, you could have easily just gone to, like, co- like hidden away at a college or, or something else. But, like, a hippie commune is just so mm-hmm. weird. And, like... The thing is, though, I, I can see it. that... Where I can see that in a King novel, like, yeah. I can see yes. them ending up because, like, I feel like a lot of times King will have his character sort of end up with, you know, some sort of weird subgroup or like, you oh, know, like just people not. who can. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. Or just like people who bring a little bit of weird color to a scene, mm-hmm. you know, like I feel like yeah. that, like when I was watching it, I was like, this is horrible and silly. Like, especially when the hippies like, hey, Jude, you know, to Andrew. <laughs> oh, God. Just, a wink, like, wink. <laughs> I like wanted to shoot myself and then dark um, tower uh, connection right there though. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I like, I could see it though on page. Like I could see that scene maybe working a little bit better on page. I mean, honestly, I see this whole thing working better on page. Like, like Mike, you were talking to me about the scenes where like just these long scenes of Andrews in his bed, like with a woman Mm -hmm. next to him and like, uh, and him drinking and stuff like that, like, and nothing really happening. But then it's like, it's Mm -hmm. what's funny is almost like, well, King, 
King's work writing it. And he's like, well, this is the scene in the book where I'd have him alone in his mm-hmm. room sort of mapping out his plan internally. And mm-hmm. it would be this probably yeah. great interior monologue. But it's like he left the scene in, but he's like, I don't need the dialogue. I don't need the interior <laughs> well, monologue. I just, I just kept thinking, like, they're at the set. I'm like, all right, so, uh, hey, um, you know, what, what, what scene are we uh, doing? Hey, uh, Kenneth Frank, or, who, or no, who was the director? Stephen Tolkien. Hey, Stephen, uh, what scene are we shooting today? Uh, well, you know, we're just setting up the scene right now. Uh, Artie's uh, sitting on the bed, uh, or the futon. He's got uh, his uh, sixth uh, cigarette of the, the day. Um, we're just going to shoot him. Uh, he's going to be sitting there <laughs> contemplating. Uh, you know, just if you got to go off set for a little bit, go off set. But we're, we're going to shoot this scene. <laughs> And it's literally, and it's not just like a flash in the pan scene. Like it is a five minute scene of him just sitting there Mm -hmm. contemplating on a fucking bed smoking. Like, I mean, insane. Yeah. And it feels like, like this is something you guys talked about in the last episode, but it feels like reading his dialogue and reading like everything and just nobody edited any of it Mm -hmm. out. And I wonder if this was like one of the beginnings of people saying, hey, Steve, we're going to have to edit some of this because this just doesn't work. Like it felt like, watching a table read or like a staged reading of the boring parts from Tommy Knockers and then the boring parts of Firestarter. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually kind of cool that we're revisiting this right now as we're also (laughs) revisiting the Stan miniseries because, hey, for all its faults, the Stan miniseries is pretty concise in terms of Uh like an adaptation with the book. Like for an adaptation that had spent like over a decade in developmental hell, for King to be able to tackle it and make it um, uh, consumable and digestible for a miniseries, it's pretty or much of a, it's a remarkable feat. But I wonder if like <laughs> the Tommy Knockers and this and uh, you know it, I think is f- probably the most successful of the three of them easily. Um, but this was, if I almost feel like this might have been like a test tube for him to like be like, all right, well, here's my ch- here's my hand at television. I've already done film, you know, to precision because I feel like. Pet Cemetery two years beforehand, he knocked that out of the park. Mm-hmm. But with this, I I wonder if this was his way of like kind of getting like his th- getting through his growing pains for television. You well, know? you know, he was writing this script from. I mean, obviously, he had been working on it as a novel and working through the ideas like in his notebook and everything. But you know, this is like a whole cloth idea that he was bringing to TV. But the problem mm-hmm. is, he just he was bringing the same sensibilities that he was using as. Um, as a Another. novel writer, yeah. yeah, like to this format. And that, I think that's why he called it a novel for the screen. And I think maybe the way he saw it was when he called it a novel for screen, he's like, well, I'm not going to. Yeah, I mean, because you also have to think about what kind of TV was being made at that time. And Mike, you yeah. pointed out that it's like not just like not everything is Twin Peaks, you know, like uh, like Miami Vice and a lot of these shows were they were good, like they were procedural, yeah. but there was good stuff going on in them. Not everything was like soap operas and dumb and, you know, like dumb uh, sitcoms and stuff like that. But I think when King is talking about novel for TV, he's thinking about the boat monologue, right? Or like mm-hmm. the um, or what was the other the Stephen Root monologue from the first part? Uh, yeah, it, well, it just went on and on and on. It went on, like and that we talked about in the last episode. It's like where he talked about the roast beef and then he's also talking about the eyes and stuff like that so yeah i mean 
But it's, I look at those moments and I'm like, well, that's good. I think there's good writing there. It's like mm-hmm. stuff that I would like on the page. And so when he talks about it being a novel for television, I think he sees it more like, well, it's going to be a little bit more cerebral. Um, the, I'm going to allow the characters to pontificate and speak and monologue and, and get deep a little bit more than is usually allowed on television. And so I mm-hmm. think that that's what he was going for, which is like an ambitious idea. But he also, A, paired it with, um, you know, a, a, a story that lends itself to uh fast-paced and uh like genre trappings and it doesn't necessarily lend itself to like uh contemplative drama and and i don't think he had the directors um uh, who to i don't know like make it that like make that sort of thing work and he also didn't have an editor obviously um to help him edit this stuff down so it's like i mean i think we keep talking about how boring it is and so much of that goes to just how horribly it's paced like this the slowness Mm -hmm. of it you know it's not like the story itself is completely bankrupt of of you know, interesting ideas. It's just that there's a tonal inconsistency. There's uh, a a lot of poor performances. And and Jen, I want to hear your thoughts on some of the acting in a minute, but it's like, you've got great, (laughs) I know, but you've got great actors in here and they're all just like shit in the bed. And so, and it's not their fault necessarily. I think that there was just, you know, a lack of vision. And we talked to Jen, you might've heard in the last episode, but we talked a lot about how there was, there was no vision like sort of here. Like uh, there was no, like directorial vision. Like there's a scene at the beginning of, you know, the second half that we are watching with Ackerman where he's like terrified that he's going to be murdered. And he's like, I need protection. And he's like yelling at Cruz on the phone. And then I don't know if you guys remember this, but he like goes out to the hospital and like bumps into a nurse. And then they start playing like what I call moron music, which is like, yes. Oh my God. The the oboes in in this. Yeah. But it's like, what, what do you like? It's just a weird moment of humor. And maybe that's that Twin Peaks aspect where they were trying to work in a little humor amidst all the drama, Mm -hmm. but it just really didn't work. And I think it's because it lacks that, that vision, you know, because like we said in in the last episode, it's like, it starts off as one thing. And then suddenly you Felicity Huffman's got dolls on her ceiling that she's shooting. And the journalist is from the fifties or whatever. Like all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it starts trying to be Twin Peaks. And, uh, and it, it really doesn't work. And I think that just uh, it's such like a weird mishmash of styles and tones and um, really hard. And I think just a unifying lack of vision, both from King, who I think because the way that I see it is I think one of the reasons it's so slow is because, you know, King was so hot at this time. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he I mean, he was always hot, but it's like I think the idea for I think when they said that they would give him a full season of TV to make something that he was like, well, of course they'll give me a second season, you know? And they probably told him that, Mm -hmm. like, to get him on board. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll let you finish the story however you want to finish it. But it performed so poorly um, that they just had no choice but to cancel it. So I think that he was always operating like he was going to get another whole season to keep telling the story. Which is baffling to me because this literally is, like, the anti- TV show of the early 90s. I mean, the early, I mean, we kind of talked about this in the, in the first episode, but like when you really break this down, like it couldn't have been more of a juxtaposition to everything that was popular at the time. Like this is the rise of 90s television, which was you're going to start getting this lean on sexy and young, sexy and young. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the days of 70s television where, you know, the average age was like, you know, 40 and 50, 
had died slowly throughout the 80s especially with the rise of like family programming where like you got like family ties and you get like someone like Michael J. Fox who becomes a poster child and then you get someone that's like like who's the boss with Tony Danza who's like a young fit like younger um, uh, you know um, uh, patriarch so when you get into the 90s all of a sudden you start getting these real big uh, teen dramas that are like capitalizing on like the zeitgeist of television and this is literally the antecedent of that. Like you get, not only do you get like a fucking story that's centered around two geriatric, uh, like a geriatric couple, but then you get something that's, that's centered around the military industrial complex, which couldn't have happened at a worse time when we literally have the Iraq war, uh, the U S Iraq war that's happening where nobody really wants to focus on fucking military at that point. Yeah. Like you literally had like, <laughs> you had like rallies around campuses that were like anti-military the entire time around this, this period. And like, it just, and then you, have like this hippie commune moment which isn't even even like aligned with the sort of nostalgia that's going on like the nostalgia mm-hmm. at this point was like late six well i guess it would be kind of hippie in a way because you had like the late 60s early 70s um post psychedelic uh, moment of like what the grunge movement was kind of c- capitalized on but that was still a little early on it just seems like such an anti-successful television show um like it was just like a <laughs> recipe for disaster i mean like mm-hmm. the youngest person on this cast list is is what felicity huffman yeah i mean who well can i can i read you something kind of amazing yeah yeah go for it because so, you, you have a, you found a positive review for this right yeah so i found an entertainment weekly review um that i it, i think it was a pre-air review so i don't know how many episodes they have because they don't clarify in it how many they watched not all of it because they do say like in the episodes i watched but the um but i was cracking up because everything you're saying about like sexy young tv I think that I think that there was like I think that they were trying to accomplish that to a degree and that's what this review points to. So let me just read it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll read this paragraph. As in the best of King's work, the author contrasts supernatural doings with ordinary life, and the scenes here that establish the gentle, loving marriage of Harlan and Gina are touching without succumbing to sentimentality. King knows something that yeah. never seems to occur to other, uh, uh, most other modern writers of scary stories. To jolt your audience, you first have to get it uh, to care about the lead characters. Sternhagen's <laughs> and Sarah Botchka's uh, performances are models of low-key charm, even if his old man makeup by special effects wizard Dick Smith is occasionally fake-looking. And when it turns out that Lauder, Huffman, and Call form a romantic triangle, the story becomes something utterly unprecedented in King's work. Sexy. Wait a second. <laughs> a romantic triangle? I never once got like the fact that like Andrews and Huffman had like some romance. I just felt, figured that they were like work-related. I mean, yeah. Oh, I thought it was like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith kind of vibe. Now, I don't think that they were like intimate at any point because he's terrible. But I mean, I did get kind of that that push pull, but never would I think that was a love triangle. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, the thing I like, the only thing I really did like out of it, and just because I, I still love the Sam and Diane uh, Jim and Pam thing, even though I hate Jim and Pam, but um, <laughs> is the, 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 the Span and Cruz like relationship i like the adult relationship of this i kind of wish we got a little mm-hmm. bit more of it um because louder is great but like i never got a sense that like i just thought that call was like fuck this she went against protocol that was it like you know but i think we can all agree that there is nothing <laughs> sexy about any of this no <laughs> no I mean, even when they have her in her bra for some reason just yeah, standing there weird. talking to everyone i mean i, I will yeah. say 
uh, I don't know. I mean, for it's it's titillating television. Um, I mean, <laughs> to like I I I'm, this is something that's maybe getting a little too um, uh, TMI, but I always love like when any character um, is just caught with like um, like mid you know like they're you know they're like getting ready and somebody like walks mm-hmm. in or something like that like whenever that's on television and like if it's a sexy lead or something like that I always think that's like there's something sensual about it and like something like you know there's something sexy about it so like I did think like for 90s television it kind of reminded me of like the sort of like you know the the Twin Peaks sexy edge of it where they you know they were running uh strong with Sherilyn Fenn and um uh Maginamic and um and Laura Flynn Boyle when they were like running with them, like as like the, the, the ladies of Twin Peaks. I, de- I did think that that this show was like trying to lean on that with Felicity Huffman in that scene. Um, and it was like, you know, Francis fairly Sternhagen. successful, <laughs> but at the same time, it was also just like, why is this happening here? Like, you know, it, I mm. have to say though, when I read this EW review, I know King has a strong relationship with EW. He was a columnist. He to, yeah. Well, he used to be, and this was in 1991. So he, I, you know, I don't know what his relationship with, with them was there, but I read this and I am just like, this is kind of, this is like a hack job, you know, like this is, uh-huh. this was a, you know, cause this is before that sort of thing I think was more seen and frowned about. And it was just kind of established like, okay, this artist or his agent has a relationship with the paper. Because when I read this thing about the lead characters having a models of low-key charm, uh, touching without succumbing to s- sentimentality, and then just calling it sexy, that literally sounds like it was like written by a publicist. You know well, what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that's why when you texted me that yet last night and made the joke, I was like, um, future EW columnist uh, Stephen King yeah. is giving Lynch and Frost a run for their pie-stained money with golden years. Owen Glaberman, uh, EW. I Here's the thing, though. Do we, we look at this now as being like smaltzy hallmark um, bullshit drama, but was that the case then? Because as much as I, I love the cinematic majesty of like you know Miami Vice and I still think Hill Street Blues is great and there are a lot of awesome forward thinking uh ahead of the curve shows of the 80s there are a lot of like over the top sentimentality towards all the in all those shows just because that was a product of television as a medium was this a, a little bit more edgier than that at the time I, I don't know I mean it, so are edgier we just- yes but I think the real problem is like anybody who's praising and like we established on the last episode that Keith uh, Zarabachka has a great career and he's doing great, but he is awful in this. Like his voice never rises beyond like a certain octave. He mumbles everything. It's like the most, or he's like, I don't know. It's, it is one of the most like sleep inducing performances I've ever seen. It makes that, me wonder if like his career is just like he's like Forrest Gumped his whole entire career where he's just like stumbled <laughs> into role after role after mm. this. But know. like it just like, OK, so acting wise, Jen, who is it that you would say Ooh. maybe you were impressed by? And then who do you think were embarrassing? Well, Frances Sternhagen, I just love her. And I, I, she was my favorite in this. I think Felicity Huffman is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really it. Everybody else just was so annoying. And it's like when you have these good performances because everything else is so flat and it feels so like empty and soulless, it's like those, the, the people that are actually giving good performances are trying, it stands out as like overacting, you know, because yeah. the baseline is so low. And I think I I love Stephen King but I think a lot of that is this dialogue 
And like if this were a novel that we all had read, because the, yeah, Stephen King, I don't think is a great dialogue writer and, you know, I love him, but whatever. Um, mm. But what works and what makes these kind of bizarre things like the hippie commune work or like the, the planning five minute like lighter flick thing is because we get all of that great internal dialogue mm-hmm. and that makes us really like these characters a lot. And so like we're kind of and also when you're adapting it for the screen, you get a lot more of the background of the characters. And so like as an actress, I would read this book and like kind of understand who this character is. And it's just like you don't get any of that. All you get is this hammy dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so I like I don't know. I don't think anybody really did a good job other than Frances Sternhagen because she's amazing. But even then, like, their relationship feels so, like, one-sided. It does. like what you're saying. It's like the entire cast is acting through old age makeup. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, didn't didn't you get the feel, like, when they're on the, when she gets on the bus, when, um you know, uh, Gina gets on the bus and, like, Harlan's, mm. like, you know, reaching out and putting their hand there, I, like, felt mm-hmm. absolutely Speaking of nothing. Gump. Right. Yeah. No. Seriously. Yes. Like it was just like this is supposed to be an emotional moment. The only time I actually felt anything was just because of uh, Stephen King's uh, lyrical poetry. I agree. I think dialogue is, is probably his weak spot. But man, does mm-hmm. King know how to do a great metaphor? And like the the discussion mm-hmm. of the ship and how they used to watch the ships uh, from the shore and how she says like Gina finally says like, well, you're on the ship now. Like that had some resonance to it. Even yeah. if I didn't really give a shit about who was saying it. Like, you know, it was just like, ooh, mm-hmm. that's a good metaphor. I want to use that in the future. I don't care that it came from Gina Williams talking to her husband, Harlan. But I'm going to I like that image and I'm going to think do. about that, you know. But that's like part of and parcel why I love Stephen King's writing. And like when that stuff came through in this uh, miniseries, which is far and few between, um, it worked. But like. Yeah, the dialogue in this is just, it's so, like, uh, prescriptive and incredibly um, exposition-driven. Like, and mm-hmm. to the point where, like, you could almost tell, like, the actors were almost bored. Like, Felicity Huffman, at this at at this point in the series, had already checked out, I felt like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Know, like, so, and then B.B. from Frasier shows up at the very end, who I <laughs> love. And this was in that moment where I was like, holy shit, is that Margot Martindale? And is that yeah. B.B.? Um, and she says some line where um, it's always dark for me. And it's like I could feel part of her die as she <laughs> said yeah. that. Because, yeah, she's blind, like, right? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And then there's that thing where Stephen Root is talking about how many times you do it a week. And it I turns know. out he's talking Ugh. about square dancing. Like, what the I fuck? Know. I love Stephen Root, and he deserves better. He's so... <laughs> that's where, like, that's I where love I think... Stephen Root. He is awful in this. Like, yes. I mean, it's a horrible role, but yeah. Yeah. That's where I feel like King was trying so hard to be like Twin Peaks, is with the Stephen Root stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the whole f- sequence with him uh, talking about the square dancing, getting all weird, him being on the plane, doing this, like, almost two-bit Three Stooges slash Marx Brothers routine with uh, Louder... Um, and then them at the airport with all the other weird shit that's happening there. It felt as if like it was so late in the late enough in the game here that I did feel as if like King was like taking notes from peaks because like we see yeah. that King is a total is a voracious TV watcher. I mean, like now that we know everything that he does, his habits with like regards to Twitter <laughs> and his little, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the stuff that he's written with EW, like he is he definitely is chameleonic when it comes to pop culture. Um and I mean, you could see it even early on with his books. Like, I mean, like the fact that like 
uh, Carrie seems to be ripped from a lot of the afternoon specials of that era. Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that King was at home a lot of the time at this point. So I imagine he caught a lot of those shows, which is why a lot of that probably got transformed into a lot of the the sort of spirit of Carrie there. I guarantee you that's what he did with this stuff that was coming through with golden years here. He was like, Oh, let's get weirder. Which is why I feel mm-hmm. like these later episodes absolutely lose. Like they they kind of stray from the sort of grounded, um, or I guess as grounded as it could be in those first few episodes. But like it gets loony here, and I feel like that's why, because he's like, "Oh, this Twin Peaks is the hottest show. All right, I want to try yeah. my hand at this. This is my log lady yeah. thing. I mean, yeah. look at right now. He's literally doing true crime because I mean, like, I mean, I don't fault him. I mean, Michael Jackson, who is the king of pop, the one of the greatest musicians of all time, um, he cribbed from what was stylish and popular at the time anyone who's at the top has to stay at the top by hitting on the trends and king absolutely does it here by trying to Mm -hmm. tackle the weird of twin peaks so i don't know maybe that's why well yeah and that's just where i think there's so many like the whole ackerman character just feels like of another show it's in like the moron music that plays when he bumps into the nurse and then right before he gets blown up the shot of him going out to his car he's like bumbling like when he's getting into his car it's like watching like kramer get into a car like on Mm -hmm. you know and i'm just like what are you but like he's not like that actor is just not gifted at that sort of thing he is very like big and goofy and like he is indicating like everything he's doing and relying on this like goofy boop 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 music and like i i just found it so bizarre and then you but then you cut to louder and louder is great but he doesn't he's not doing comedy you know what i mean mm-hmm. and so like you put these two together and and like uh, same with louder putting him with root and then trying to do this comedy there it just doesn't work that's not why you hire ed louder in your movie you know what i mean you don't hire him to mm-hmm. dress up like a hippie like it it, it mm-hmm. might be funny like on the surface but this is stuff that you're you're not using your actors in the best way possible. And it just feels like so strange. And so, um, you know, mm-hmm. do, would you say that Artie calls the only one that knows exactly what type of show he's in right now or, or not right now, but like in this show, like I feel like call or who plays Andrews. I felt like he was the only one that like fit the tone at all times. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I don't think he's, I was even saying to you, like, there are certain scenes where it sounds like he's tripping over his lines and I can't mm-hmm. believe they use those mm-hmm. takes. Yeah. But at the same time, like he at least strikes me as consistent uh, with the tone. And he seems to understand that he's supposed to be a sort of larger than life villain who, um, mm-hmm. you know, is always <laughs> glowering, but has that sort of like, I don't know, uh, smarmy charm to him. Uh, and so uh-huh. I, I at least like could buy him in those scenes and I found him you know relatively amusing even if I wouldn't say that I thought he like I'd say he was well cast even if he wasn't necessarily good but then you've got Mm -hmm. like um I don't know like because like for every character there would be these moments where I would be where I was sitting there listening and I'm like I think this would be good on page like Louder Mm -hmm. has that monologue where he goes into Felicity Huffman's office and he he is like where are you you know and he's looking at her fish and he has this whole like monologue about it and it's just stuff that lands so flat because it's not shot mm-hmm. dynamically. It's not acted dynamically. It's oh, not no, really no. earned, but I'm listening to the words and I'm imagining them in a novel. And I am like, I can mm-hmm. see this working. It's the same with the boat monologue. And it's the same with, uh, with, uh, Dr. X when he, he has that bit where he's like talking to the, the mouse, the mouse, because that's such a King convention, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like this person by himself, like talking to an inanimate object or an animal or something and court of sort of creating this whole conversation that I think on, like he's doing that whole tap, tap, tap bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the, the language on the page is really interesting 
but it falls so tremendously flat when it is brought to life in this package. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I mean, so even, yeah. even down to something like him going to the grave, which I had to laugh yeah. because we get to see his name Todd Hunter written in bold type on a, <laughs> on a gravestone, just exacerbating the whole his feeling. His great great grandfather hunted Todd's down. I think is why that. <laughs> but that's yeah. like again one of those scenes where I'm watching it and I'm going. I blinked and he's suddenly crying over a grave. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'm mm-hmm. like, what did I miss? Like, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm disconnected. I'm not swept up in this. Like things are happening and maybe the, the bones of it are there in the dialogue, but I'm zoning out so much because this is also tremendously boring that yeah. suddenly mm-hmm. something weird is happening. And I'm like, wait, when did this start? How did this happen? Why is it such a feeling of whiplash when we get here? You know, and I felt so, my, I found myself rewinding so many times because of that. Yes. Like, I, I, it was so incongruent that I was like, wait, did I miss a scene? Oh no, it just jumped to here nope that doesn't yeah mean. granted i was watching the dvd cut which edited even more so this really felt like a fever dream but it just doesn't even watching the tv cut because i got about like two hours into the second half of the tv cut so i saw most of it but like it just felt as if like there was no real connective tissue and like there'll be mm-hmm. situations where you know king is at his worst where you know when you read his king story he usually has those diatribe or like tangents where he goes in short stories right it yeah. felt as if he was doing that with like beats for different characters and that doesn't work on television. Like you need to have some sort of linear lines for your, your narratives and it just mm-hmm. not the case here at all. Or you need to set it up as part of your show. Like I think about lost, I think does that very mm-hmm. well, yeah. but that's because it's part of, it's like woven into the fabric of the show. And I think he can do that in books, but it just doesn't come across here. Okay. And yeah. I'm not somebody who really geeks out over directors. It's just not really something I'm like always thinking about, but I really noticed the absence of any kind of directorial vision here. And it's just, it's like what we're saying. There's so many pieces that could be great and it just never comes together. Like Randall, could you imagine writing episode by episode reviews for this? (laughs) Like there's no real singularity to the episodes. Like, I mean, in, in watching the TV edit, when it fades away and you can tell where the credits are and all like, I'm just like, wait, that was an episode? I mean, yeah, I know. Like, the, the way some of them would end, I would like crack up. I'm like, imagine like seeing that and then being like, I got to wait a week to keep watching this. I'm not going to do that. And then yeah. so it's like, no wonder it tanked. But it's, it's like, um, I don't know, because I was noticing a lot of other King conventions, like not just in the way that the characters would interact with their surroundings, but all in the way that the story unfolded. Again, very Firestarter-esque and also very Um, Mm Institute-esque. Yeah, like, Mike, you haven't read the Institute, but they're actually, I mean, again, another, it's not the shop, but it might as well be the shop. Uh, yeah. But there was a lot of DNA shared in, in just the general arcs of, of these stories. I And... But one of the things that King likes to do that I always enjoy is he likes to pair up um, characters of different sort of stripes Mm -hmm. and uh, like people from different corners of the story, have them meet up and become like a little team. And so there was moments of that where I kind of like that because I'm conditioned by King to enjoy those moments. (laughs) But, you know, because we get Stephen Root and Ed Lauder, they kind Mm -hmm. of team up and have this like unlikely partnership. And it's like and in any other like I think the the intention King was going for was that these are two different people. Let's bring on some uh, mismatch comedy, like odd couple kind of comedy. Unfortunately, that shit just does not work because the writing wasn't there. The acting wasn't there. And then you also bring in like when Dr. Todd Hunter and then the janitor, uh, like the slow janitor team up, that's supposed to be like, oh, you've got this 
genius and then you've got this guy who's not smart at all and who mm-hmm. keeps Dichotomy. like Dichotomy. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, like this will be a fun pairing and when they hug like each Andrews other. Andrews and the... Burton and yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it... Like Andrews mm-hmm. and Burton, like these are these are characters who are supposed to like complement and bounce off each other in a certain way. And he and if you look at how it's structured, it's just like in a King book where as we near the end of um or the climax of a certain moment, King does these short chapters where he pivots between the different groups of characters and we get to spend time with them. We're watching kind mm-hmm. of like all the all the, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the different um, cursors, like all combining into one yeah. at the center of the screen, mm-hmm. right? Like we're watching them all gather there. And those are always to me, extremely fun. I mean, like uh-huh. that's one of my favorite things about reading King is like when he's, he set up all the pieces and they all start falling and they're going to land mm-hmm. in one place in the middle. It's like why I love needful yeah. things so much. But so I can see like, that's the thing about golden years that I think is so funny is that in a lot of ways I'm seeing King tropes that I like and I'm seeing writing that uh, not that dialogue but writing like you know like i'm thinking more of the Mm -hmm. monologues and the actual exchanges yeah um like because these are things that would be done internally on page you know and so uh it's like i see those moments and i can recognize i'm like there's the writer i love but it's Mm -hmm. but again as we've been saying it's like this package for it so there was there was fundamental missteps like each step of the way like king needed an editor they needed a director with vision and they needed something to motivate the actors to immerse themselves a little bit more in there and i think that uh uh sarabaka the guy who's the lead he's just i'm sure he's a fine actor but to me he really sucks all yeah. of the life out of every scene he's in yep and it's mm-hmm. like that to me was like a really hard thing i i kept wondering i'm like what would this look like with a different actor like would i have enjoyed it more if it was uh not this guy playing the lead because he's just tremendously dull well so. the, mm-hmm. and, and there's also the problem that the hook of this, I mean, we look at the hook of every book that we talk yeah. about on this podcast, and I would be struggling to find the hook for this because I think you posed the question on text. It was like, try to see if the de-aging narrative matters in any in any way, shape, or form, and it doesn't. <laughs> it does. I mean, they have, it doesn't. Some, they have some interesting moments where they're like talking about how you have this couple that's aged together, and all of a sudden they're separating. But like, what did they? What is he trying to get at metaphorically mm-hmm. here? Like, it doesn't it, really yeah. add up. And that was the one part of the story that I actually did like. And I like was listening to your conversation in the last episode and trying to like think about king and like what he was getting at when he was writing and i feel like this is almost like a precursor to eleven twenty two, which you guys already talked about but like if you look at where he was getting sober i feel like there's almost this like like there's as a person who is in recovery right now there's this feeling of losing time mm-hmm. to your addiction and i was thinking like he's he's exploring like what it would be like to go back and live as a younger person knowing mm. that he has like he's lost all of this time maybe because he didn't remember or he would make different choices and like i was wondering if he was thinking like would tabitha still love me if i were a different person because once you stop drinking like you just you're there's that fear that you're not going to be fun anymore and so as I was watching this I was like seeing those themes and like what you were talking about Randall like I don't know if I would enjoy this book but I wanted to read it with all of the like the character and the the like interwoven backstories that King would bring to it because I think there is a good story here and I think the hook would emerge from that but it's just all over the place Mm -hmm. well yeah like the most interesting moments to me um you know, it, it really is in the marriage. And mm-hmm. like, cause she, I, I actually thought it was quite moving when 
Francis Sternhagen said, I don't want you looking at me because I'm old, you know? Mm -hmm. And that really does, like, that really does point to, because, you know, him de-aging, it serves no impact on the plot. The only thing that it really, I mean, it's the motivation for them coming to kill him, but it doesn't aid him or assist sort of the ongoing narrative and his fate at all. Rather, Mm -hmm. it, like, the one thing that it does most effectively is uh, is draw out the interesting themes of what that means for a marriage. And so mm-hmm. those scenes when, you know, she when, you know, she said, I don't want you looking at me because I'm old and how insecure and how sad it makes her to watch him be doing this. Um, that to me, super interesting. And we did get those mm-hmm. scenes like, you know, Mike, you mentioned the boat monologue. That's actually the mm-hmm. kind yeah. of a lovely moment. Unfortunately, the one about the seams on the back of her hose. Yeah, I liked that one, too. Yeah. And then um, and I actually thought it was interesting, although I texted you, Mike, I said, um, I've just got to gotten to the scene where, you know, young Harlan bones old Gina. Um, (laughs) And so because like I was waiting for that scene to happen. And and then when when he kisses her at the end, I thought she was dead. Wait, she's what was just that? Laying there. There's a moment where like they're laying together, and she's just laying there, oh, yeah. and he leans over to kiss her, and I swear I thought she was going to be dead. Yeah, but then yeah. she wasn't. She woke up. Well, well speaking of death, I mean, you told me, Randall, that like, uh, you know, um, Gina was supposed to die in the original. You know, in the, yeah, the, she dies at the end in the. She original dies in the TV cut. cut. So, th- any themes that he was going to chew on with regards to age would have had to have been done in these episodes, and like. I don't even think he gets really that deep into it. It's just like, it, it becomes almost like an accoutrement of like the entire narrative, whatever the narrative is, which is just like a road movie or a road story. Like, uh-huh. and it, it just, had they been able to maybe do something where they didn't know who was uh, warped by the explosion and this was happening in the town and it was, you know, it was contained to this town and not this like sort of chase uh, road thing which we saw already in Firestarter like maybe this could have been a more interesting character study between the two of them and you deal with those themes a little bit like and he has to kind of hide his age a little bit like that would have mm-hmm. been interesting I, I don't know but like it just seems as this it's such a surface level study which seems so um uh antithetical to like what King usually does with his characters like I feel like thing. King I think in the book like these themes would have popped a lot more. Yeah. It's just oh, on, in this format, they are not. Well, and when you think about like some of his characters that have this kind of gradual transformation, there's thinner and then there's like elevation mm-hmm. yep. and like you get to see that play out, yeah. you know, and see what, like what the meaning of it is. And there's a moment where he's talking about what the end game for this thing is, is like, am I going to be a toddler? Am I going to be a preemie in the hospital? And that reminded me of this moment in Firestarter when one of the doctor guys is talking about like, could she split the earth in two? Which I think are, those are so cool that mm-hmm. when king does that kind of stuff yeah but there's just no weight to any of this and we don't see it play out because they just like turn into green light and disappear <laughs> yeah, I know. well and along the lines of what you were saying mike about sort of how surface level it is it's true too because it seems like the one trick that this fucking couple always goes back to is let's dance gina mm. <laughs> i know i wrote they're always fucking dancing like in my <laughs> in my notes well they and- were trying to get that song from david bowie and yeah it, he wouldn't give it and so then as he saw the first episode, he was like, no, I only gave they, you one song. I'm not giving <laughs> you two. And then when they did bang, it kind of got colored. Uh, it kind of got colored for me by um, 
it, it got pound cakey, you know? Yeah. Because then he's <laughs> uh-huh. like, he basically asks her, how many times have we banged? And then she's like, <laughs> or she says that to him. And he's like, if we had a buck for every time, we could buy a Mercedes mm-hmm. Benz. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just yeah, like, even when he's talking about like rubbing the line off of her legs. Like yes. he was he's saying I rubbed it off and then in my head I heard from friction, like from parts of the <laughs> <laughs> But it's like it's like uh, that's such a sweet moment and like to me it felt like such a broy moment. I don't know. Like I mean uh-huh. it's yeah. just like, yo, how many times have we fucked? He's like, Man, we could have bought a Mercedes. <laughs> It's like just very funny to me. And so I like in this moment that I think was supposed to be emotional, I just like started cracking up. And mm-hmm. um but yeah. But those are the things that work in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You care about the characters and you see the seeds of that earlier. If it bleeds, we can kill it. <laughs> Probably my favorite line from Predator. Classic Arnold. Well, now it might be my favorite Stephen King book. Uh what's that you say? Yes, Stephen King has a new book, or rather a novellas collection. It's called, you guessed it, If It Bleeds, and features four different stories. One's about a rat, another one's about a man who contains multitudes, there's a cell phone with an afterlife, and even Holly Gibney joins in on the phone. And if you're like us, you'll probably just imagine Cynthia Erivo in the role the entire time. That's a reference to HBO's The Outsider. I didn't kill that kid, Ralph, but you will read this book. After all, we have nothing but long days and pleasant nights ahead of us. Ooh, can't wait. So what are you waiting for, constant listeners? Grab a copy of If It Bleeds, the latest from Psy King. Four novellas, creepy tales, Holly Gibney, you can't lose. Get it now, wherever books are sold. Hasta la vista, baby. There are a lot of moments, though, where we were just, like, cackling when it when you were probably mm-hmm. supposed to be having a different emotion, though. You know? Yeah, should we, should we talk about some of those? Let's talk yeah. about what we laughed at. And uh, when we probably shouldn't have, because I have several of those. But um, mm. are there any that you guys have off the top of your head? Because otherwise I can hop in. Well, all the blind humor I thought was <laughs> like really, really in poor taste. Yeah. Like there's women, we already talked about the, oh, it's always dark for me. Um, and there was something else where she, she, oh, if you miss, if you can't see that, then you really can't see anything. It's like, did mm-hmm. he just say that? I mean for me it's it's literally every sequence at the commune where they just go off and blow everything up like I I mean I was just cackling in my living room and texting you Randall being like I cannot believe this when he mowed the hippies down yes I was gonna say I said out of the blue (laughs) I know I texted Mike and I said there is a scene coming up because I knew where he was where I'm like I was in hysterics and I said, you're going to know immediately what it is. And I think Mike, you just wrote, oh, totally knew. you just wrote <laughs> hippies getting shot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it is. And, and the way he shoots it is so like laissez faire. Like he's just like, <laughs> he doesn't even raise his gun. He just like, it's like at his hip and he's like, eh, boom, boom, just like shoots him immediately. And, and I just was dying. Off. I know. And the squibs mm. go off and they just stand there. And the look on the woman's face is like so freaking funny to me. And like, yeah. and just like the hippie and like the guy hippie that was out there with her is like so stereotypical. And like just oh, the yeah. way he was delivering lines when he's like, uh, hey, man, this place is open to anyone in need. <laughs> and then just and the like, hey Jude line. I wrote in my and notes. The I just wrote, that, like, holy the, shit, the, the, hippies getting shot. <laughs> And like the pl- the thing blowing up was just like it was like something out of like Loaded Weapon One or um like I mean, we we talked about it, like Decker with uh, Tim Heidecker's uh, Adult Swim show 
you know, at one point, Andrews just becomes him. Yes. Um, it just becomes a stereotypical, um, not even an action villain, but like he thinks he's the hero, uh, which is kind of the hilarious conceit of Decker. And But just shooting just indiscriminately. Is, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And like, you know, and, and you kind of get a foreshadowing of that when he's just like, you know, barking at the police guys, you know, at the, the policemen being like, all right, just shoot him. And all of them are like, wait, what? (laughs) And then when you, when you finally gets to kind of have agency over actually shooting everyone, the fact that he like just blatantly mows down these like innocent hippies, (laughs) is just not only funny to watch because it's so over the top and so ridiculous. Like it makes commando look like a fucking Oscar movie. Um, Seriously. Like the fact that it blows up the car is just pure Mm -hmm. Hollywood gold. I like, I love it. I just loved it. Mm-hmm. Cracked me up. And so um, the hippies getting shot was probably my number one laugh moment. <laughs> I couldn't believe it happened. I like had to rewind it because it, it just happened. And I like yelled. I was on my couch watching it. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> and my wife's like, what? And I'm like, mm-hmm. they shot the hippies. <laughs> so, um, but and then uh, what, what else did I crack up at? I, the whole scene. I told you about this, too, Mike. Uh, the whole scene when um, Harlan is hitchhiking first when he, just the shots of him hitchhiking were very funny to me yes. because he just like with the glasses the, on. Yeah. And the way he's like holding his thumb out and like trying yeah. to do comedy and like bits, but then just like lowering his head, like Charlie Brown, like whenever nobody would stop for him. Yeah. was very funny for Aww. me. And then he gets, he gets in this semi and it is the cheapest looking little, like, you know, front seat set I've ever <laughs> seen. I was saying to Mike, I swear like the windshield wipers they were using were like twigs or like twigs. They tore off a branch and, <laughs> and they're going so fast. Like, Fast. Like people, mm. yeah, people were just moving them like with their hands, like off camera. And then the actor playing the truck driver was so bad. And then, um, and he, and what's the line I wrote down? He goes, This guy's full of green light, <laughs> like because his eyes start glowing <laughs> green and he like runs mm. out of the car and he yells, This guy's full of green light. And then, um, oh, and then also when, when he was hitchhiking. I never realized how huge Harlan's pants were. They were so gigantic. They're like, uh, they're like MC hammer pants on him. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just killing me. It's, it's, uh, God, th- that whole sequence, it's as if like they started losing their budget. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, whatever filmic qualities they had early on in this series just went wayside for almost like borderline community theater, um mm-hmm. set design i mean the the truck is a perfect example of that it like the 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 windshield wipers literally move like <laughs> when you're watching a character in like an old twilight zone episode holding a wheel of a car and it's like yeah. he's like he's like moving it left to right as like every two seconds like <laughs> wipe, wipers don't do that like that's it, it's just so per- it, it was very weird and um just very cheap and uh, uh, yeah i don't know it it just felt like every second towards the end here it was just like this halcyonic dream like i can't believe i'm watching this and this was on yeah. television i know Harry, what the fuck and then yeah. uh and then what's the other scene i have here uh the scene with margot martindale which i don't think you got to see did you mike i did not no which oh. is unfortunate because i love her and i uh-huh. i love her in the americans which is one of my favorite shows of all time yes um, she's great in mrs america right now too Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I'm on episode two of that. It's very good. Um, love it. So yeah, uh, the scene, but you and I, Jen saw the Margot Martindale scene. I would love to hear your Uh thoughts on it. 
Well, I it was one of those moments where I looked up and I was like, holy shit, that's Margot Martindale. And get away from him. He's mm-hmm. not worth it. <laughs> and then she just, what did he just turn green or something? So, yeah. yeah, she's a waitress in a diner and she immediately wants to fuck him. Like, mm-hmm. like he's, he's still. Because well, he's young and hot now. <laughs> but is he? He's still like 50. No. <laughs> I mean, when we've seen him as 70, like he is yeah. hotter. Maybe I should say hotter. <laughs> I just find it funny. Like she immediately uh, like wants to bone him. And she says, mm-hmm. uh, hold on. I have the lines here. It cracked me up. She says, like she basically, uh, she says, I've got the best hot cross buns in town. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. About yes. and like she's saying like buy my pastries or whatever, but she's clearly saying mm-hmm. let's fuck. And then mm-hmm. um, I mean I believe her. I know. And then I just wrote I wrote Margot. He's an old man <laughs> in my uh, <laughs> in my notes. <laughs> and then I said oh. And then I wondered this uh, because he just so suddenly his eyes turn green and everybody freaks out and screams. And then it was like this. Mm-hmm. And I can see why they cut it from from your version, Mike, because. It serves no purpose. Like it has no right. purpose whatsoever, except to give them like another scene where his eyes turn green, which I imagine they used in the promos a lot. But like, oh, totally. But it made me wonder because as she's flirting with them, because like w- I was wondering, I'm like, well, what made his eyes turn green? Like, what just happened there? And I wrote, right. I, I said, did his eyes turn green because he got horny? <laughs> because I feel like there was a <laughs> moment, like right when she was hitting on him, where like he looked down at his crotch or like his hands went down there or something. Like I felt like. There was a moment where that was the implication was that he got mm-hmm. horny and it triggered whatever the green stuff inside of him. And he was surprised that it worked again because now he's younger. Yes, you know? maybe. I think like, that oh, might have been it. <laughs> Well, Which, I wonder if she was going to be the love interest in season two, maybe. She maybe. Yeah. It, it just cracked you me. You want to go hunt? Yeah. I just like, I because the thing is, I could see King writing that, right? Like. Like, uh-huh. oh, horniness, like, triggers this or something. It was just so strange. <laughs> but, like, that cracked me up and had me, like, howling. Um, Captain Trips is this dirty sailor who looked like he was pulled off the set of an 80s porno. Um, yep. mm-hmm. I can't believe they called him Captain Trips. Uh, was was very, very funny. And then when he got shot later, I, I also laughed. Well, that wasn't the only, yeah. like, little... I mean, obviously, that's, like, as you were mentioning before, like, Dark Tower-style reference of uh, King's Dominion. But, I mean, one of the things I was actually kind of surprised of was the fact that they, they directly mentioned John Rayburn. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah Terry, Terry is talking about how, like... Andrews is the is the most ruthless shop operative she ever knew. And she's like, I always thought Rain John Rainbird was the craziest, but then I met this guy, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Yeah. Which and I just kept calling him New Rainbird the yeah. whole time. Yeah. That's what I was saying. I was joking in the last episode is just New Rainbird, because it's like that's literally what he is. I mean Right. Yeah, except not as interesting. Although I don't love Rainbird. Yeah. Either. We don't either. We gotta, if you, our problem, old episode yeah. on it, we we have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> um although yeah. it makes me wonder like i imagine that when because george c scott played rainbird i bet like andrews was king writing it thinking okay this is george c scott playing you know a white shop operative <laughs> not of mm-hmm. a native, native american um but yeah let me see what else i have yeah. here do you what, what other uh, uh moments of of comedy stand out to you guys 
I have um, when they pull up and they find the car wreck, which looked like like some old timey, like suddenly we're back in the Great Depression for a minute. Um, and it was like I kept thinking, Bunny McDougal, why do you think you're a nurse? Why do you think you can help these people? Yeah. And then, but I couldn't get over the fact that they had the boy laying underneath the car. And I kept <laughs> thinking the car is going to fall on top of you. And why would you take him out and pull him around? It was so bizarre. <laughs> Um, but I mean, the funniest part for me, I think, was that fucking scarecrow scene oh, where they're God. like hunting up through the like the, the barons or whatever. Yeah, and it's just oh, it was terrible. Well, and that's the kind of thing that I think would we would kind of laugh at if it were written in a book and a, an ad or somebody who is adapting this would say we need to change this because this is bonkers. Yeah. Well, that scene was so weird to me. So basically, it's like the beginning of an episode, too. So they like stole this cop's mm-hmm. car. And then, uh, like, Terry, uh, Harlan, and Gina did. And then the car ends up, like, in the middle of some field, like, in the Barrens or whatever. And then all these Mm. cops are surrounding it, and they're, like, freaking out. And I'm, like, sitting here going, okay, so as a viewer, are we supposed to think that they're dead in the car? Or, like, or that the cops Uh are going to shoot them or something? Like, what is the tension here? Because, of course, they're not dead. Like, what is the... They're having a threesome in the car. I know. Like, what is... What do you expect us to think is going on here? And, Mm -hmm. again, maybe on paper this would have been fine. But, like, the scene goes on for so long with the It goes so long. Like, on the phone with Andrews. And Andrews, like, is, like, trying to tell them what to do. And they won't do it. And then they go through the grass. And it takes so long. Mm -hmm. And then they get there. And there's just the scary crows that read larry curly and mo which is so yeah. stupid and and you don't even see it immediately and it's almost like the director was embarrassed to shoot that and then he <laughs> had to put it in there because they actually made the scarecrows yeah and then the cops are like laughing so hard and i'm like you shouldn't be laughing fugitives got away you know <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's just, I just don't get it. Are you going to chase them? Yeah, like, don't you have a job to do? Like, I get that the Uh guy you're talking to over the radio is an asshole, but come on. Um, You got to return those scarecrows, too, you know? (laughs) There are crows eating fields as we speak, and you're doing nothing. (laughs) Um, Any scene with the janitor... Uh, like Harlan's old buddy oh. who keeps like dead animals. Taxidermy janitor. Yeah. See, mm-hmm. Mike, you're lucky. There was a whole scene between him and Andrews that goes on for, I swear to God, like 10 minutes that is not in your version. And all no, the scenes God, with him and God. Dr. Todd Hunter, because the only joke of those scenes is that this guy's really dumb and Andrews and Todd Hunter are really annoyed to have to be talking to him. Like that's the whole joke. And it goes on like the actor just reads every line, like one word, one word, one word, you know, and it's know, like, like and, the, and then they just roll their eyes and I'm just like, this is excru- I just that's the word I kept saying to you. I was like, this is excruciating. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I have one other scene that I'm going to mention. And then I want to talk about a very important cameo. I think you guys know what I'm referring <laughs> to. But uh, mm-hmm. do you all remember the scene where Felicity Huffman tells all the jocks on the bus to go harass uh, a detective <laughs> on the ground? <laughs> I think I missed that part. Oh, my God. Mike, you saw this, right? Yes. Yeah. So 
You go Felicity. For it. No, no, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> so there's this bizarre scene where like they're getting off the bus and she needs mm-hmm. to sneak by because like there's like a shop operative or something on the ground mm-hmm. and uh, they need oh, to sneak by him. Yeah, yeah. So she there's these like strong men. It's like a big group of muscled. They're hunks. all part of like an athletic department or something like that. But right? it's like, but yeah, but they're so like 1990, early 1990s yeah. hunks. And so none of them are particularly attractive or like visibly muscled. They're just large men. And so, yeah. and then she basically tells them to distract this cop. So they circle this guy and they just start like bullying him and saying something about like, like he, I, it was something to like a romantic thing or something. And the guy's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they keep hassling him. And then, uh, and then one of the, they just keep shooting the scene when they could have just stopped there. But then they like yeah. have this well, most moment. places do stop there. Like, yeah, you, you then know, they have nobody has moment. that sobering moment. Yeah. They show the sobering moment where the detective's like, we're, or the detective's like, I know what you're talking about. And the jock's like, huh? She told me that this. And then the guy's like, no. And then the guy's like, oh, no. <laughs> like, I know. Oh, my God. He screwed up. <laughs> like, this is a great example of why the, you know, a bit or, a, you know, a scene like this needs uh, to be punctual. Like, yes. You know, you can't let this scene bleed too long, which is why, like, in movies like The Fugitive or any of these things where they have like some sort of uh, gimmick to get out of them, uh, get out of a, a, you know, a tense or tight moment. You don't see how it unfolds. You don't see them mm. realizing their fault. Like that's like that, that, that you leave that to the imagination. So the fact that you see this, like the guy's like, Oh shit, we were wrong. Oh, I'm sorry. This guy's a cop. Oh, you, you, you gotta love it. <laughs> it's so true to King to be like, mm-hmm. ah, I gotta see how this unfolds. Like, and just yeah. lay in all the details as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's just so like, all right, let's get to the next scene. We know they're going to yeah. get out of this, you know. It's right. Uh, it's uh, like if this were on like page, we would have gotten that like cop we would have gotten like four pages of exposition about that one character. <laughs> yeah, right. Like he'd go home and tell his wife about the rough day he had, yeah. and then like, well, I don't want to say <laughs> the darker ending of that, but yeah. So let's uh. talk about um, a very. An- another cameo, a Stephen King cameo. If you listen to our last episode <sighs> um, on The Stand, we talked a lot about uh, Stephen King's cameo as Teddy Wyzak. And so now it is time to discuss Stephen King's cameo as the bus driver. Um, and let's... How did you guys feel about this performance from Stephen King? I love Stephen King. I love him. And I usually can overlook his cameos because I just love him. And I think his like his voice is interesting. And I just think and I kind of just will allow him a lot more grace. Um, But this was terrible. And I think probably because I was so mad at him for making me watch this whole thing to begin with. You know, (laughs) it's like, what are you doing? And they're talking about like dialogue or doesn't she tell him to shut up or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is the hammiest line. It was like, yeah, Stephen. Well, you it sounds like they were, were improvising. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they were improvising it. Like Felicity Huffman was yelling at him. And I just remember him going, you can't talk to me like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was Mike, what, was your, what are your thoughts on this King cameo? When we think about the King cameo canon, this is early <laughs> on where King still hasn't really uh, gotten the gravitas to to go all out you know mm-hmm. um we've we yeah. still see him in glimpses like i mean right before this uh we see him in i i can't actually remember what his cameo is in it the miniseries if he has one i'm pretty sure i don't he think does. he has one i don't remember he doesn't him have, well 
if it's, if there's not in one in that, he's certainly, you know, the Pet Cemetery was, you know, just a year before that one. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are little minor cameos. In this one, you could kind of tell, like, he's like, all right, I'm going to, and also Maximum Overdrive, he makes himself having a talking cameo in that too, uh, which mm-hmm. is pretty great. So this kind of feels of that, uh, cut from that sort of cloth, where it's just like a little minor role. Um, gets a little couple lines here. You could tell that he's he's getting a little. He's trying to flex his muscle a little bit as an actor. Um, we <laughs> uh, see little whispers here to be like he's getting comfortable enough to be Teddy Wyzak, uh two three years later <laughs> his in big the stand. Role. Yeah, uh-huh. you know. This um, was his audition for that. <laughs> oh lord! I mean, the thing is, is that I love seeing you know to be able to point out. Uh, you know, King cameos. Like we use the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, meme that's been going around from Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood, mm-hmm. where he's like pointing at the screen. Yeah. I always do the same thing whenever I see King in a, in a cameo. Although obviously it's a little more explicit, as we discussed with it, Chapter Two a couple of weeks ago. But like with this one, it's fine. I mean, it's it's not too ostentatious. It's enough to go, okay, great. Um, mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a. It's kind of a perfect cameo for him. I mean, yeah. I, I disagree. I, I, I hate it. It's it's too <laughs> hammy. It's too much. But it just reminded me a little like his perfect cameo is Pet Cemetery because that's perfect. It's oh, like because yeah. mm-hmm. it's eerie. It's a little bit weird. And it it sort of paints him as a, a holy figure hovering above this really tragic story. Uh, mm-hmm. And and in hindsight, I wish you would have done more of that where like it was more like Hitchcock, where when you see Hitchcock, it's actually kind of creepy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and if it, it there's like a, a sort of ominous uh, 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 weight to seeing him in the background, like when you see him walking across the street in Psycho, it's creepy because it's a very yeah. paramount moment for uh, Janet Lee's character. Um, if King would have stuck to that, then he, it, it, you know, it would have been great. And like Pet Cemetery is a perfect example of that. Well, it points Mm -hmm. to it points to the fact that he was a pop figure. You know, he wasn't just like Mm -hmm. a literary Mm -hmm. figure. He was a pop figure. And that reminds me of like the trailer he cut for Maximum Overdrive. Right. Where he's just Mm -hmm. like they say, if you want to do something right, do it yourself. You know, and it's a really cheesy thing. I mean, I imagine it was kind of a cool thing before that movie came out and it had potential to still be good. But it's like it just does point to the idea that King was as much as like as I would love for him to, and that's the thing is the King of then is different from the King of now, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. there is something more stately about him now. And I think, you know, post his accident, um, he dialed down the, I don't know, the goofiness of the King persona. Whereas I feel like in some ways he was embracing sort of the, the portrayal of him in the media as the shockmeister and not an author who was to be taken seriously, but rather somebody who wrote beach fiction and airport fiction. And now I think that's yeah. changed. People don't see that. So I think it was him leaning into the goofiness a little bit, like the rock star aspect of it a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so when I look at him in the stand and I look at him in this, that's it's that side of him I see. And it's that side of him that I don't necessarily love. And maybe that's because I associate it with people not taking him seriously. Um, well, and this, that's, is, mm-hmm. this is only his sixth cameo. Is I, I just looked it. I just looked it up. Yeah. So before this, he had done Pet Cemetery, uh, Creep Show Two. He was the truck driver. Yeah. Um, for the Hitchhiker, which he actually has a, a pretty problematic talk um, uh, lines <laughs> in that. Uh, Maximum Overdrive. He has a few lines as the man in the bacon count. And then before that was Creep Show Jordy Verrill, um, yeah. which is arguably his biggest role. I think in uh, other than, um, I think that would even be bigger than the stand because he's the main character. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. Jordy's like yeah. It's only him. Yeah. Yeah, and like before that, he was Hoagie Man and uh, George Romero's Night Riders, which is only a year before Creep Show. So, um, well, 
I think when I like watch this, it, I think it, there's this insecurity that I feel while he's saying these lines, you know, and there's it's like you have he has to let us know he's in on the joke. Yeah. You know? And it's like kind of what you're talking about, about taking himself seriously. And I wonder if that like speaks to his new sobriety, too, because yeah. there's maybe this feeling of him not like not being himself anymore. And like, are people going to take me seriously now? And I know when I was reading on writing, he was talking about that, like, will I still be able to write? And I think that's a little like him kind of poking fun or like you know if you're insecure about something you're going to make a joke about it first right so that people know you know that take the pressure off and that's kind of what this feels like yeah right yeah and so I think that's I think I was thinking about that just in the larger sense with his with his cameo here I started thinking about how him as a pop persona rather than a literary one which I think has changed a little bit I mean obviously he's still um he's still a public figure but obviously I think he's I don't know. Like, if you look at his cameo in It Chapter 2, I don't love it, but it at least points to, like, less rock star king and more, like, sage-like king. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Which I think yeah, is kind of interesting. Yeah, he a lot more relaxed. Yeah, he's, like, more relaxed. He's And he's, uh, I don't know, he kind of feels like grandpa, you know, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, like, that's why I kind of love that interview with uh, Vanity Fair that went up this week uh, that Anthony Bresnikan did because he kind of talks about, you know, living through a few things from his books, like the idea of a Stilson-like character being president, the idea of a global pandemic, and then he said that he felt like Jack Torrance in his house because he's, mm-hmm. you know, quarantined in. And uh, mm-hmm. and he has all the time in the world to write, you know. And so it's I think that that's kind of interesting, and I like hearing him, in a way, talk like that because it feels reflective and uh, it doesn't feel try-hardy. And and I think that's mm-hmm. maybe part of why I don't love him in the stand and why I don't love him in this, because it kind of just has a try hard quality where, it, yeah. where it's like he's trying to cultivate this rock star persona. And I'm just I, I just don't love it. And so anyways, yeah. that's my uh, uh, wet blanket take on Stephen <laughs> King's cameo in Golden Years. Um, I mean, the good thing is it's short. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It, it is. It could have been a short. whole scene. Right. Um, let's talk about the ending a little bit. So uh, so. The ending that was initially supposed to happen, Gina dies and Harlan mm. is captured by the shop. And so uh, and then they take him off. So I think to prevent an Alf situation, because as we all remember, Alf ended when they thought they were going to get another season. It ended with him getting captured and taken to a facility. And then it was just over. And Wait, everybody what? thought I didn't know that. That's yeah. crazy. Well, I think they eventually made project alf or whatever which was like (laughs) the proper follow-up that actually wrapped it up but like Mm. the initial run of alf like ended with him getting captured by the government and basically it was like he was gonna get just killed and dissected that is ridiculous yeah it's like well it's like the dinosaurs ending too right like which Mm -hmm. it ends with the meteor gonna kill everyone yeah and so doesn't quantum leap in like that too oh i never seen quantum leap Oh my god, I love that show. But yeah, it ended. Well, I don't want to spoil it. Well, actually, <laughs> technically, Quantum Leap ends uh, on the last uh, or, or a few seasons ago on Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He uh, oh, Scott Bakula right. uh, reprises his role in uh, um, The Gang Turns Black. So, oh, nice. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. love Scott Bakula. Same. Um, yeah. So I think that they didn't want it, you know, when they decided that they weren't going to renew the series, they didn't want it to end on you know a dark foreboding. Uh, cliffhanger and they were going to give it a proper ending which is why it feels so rushed so what we get is is Andrew's getting shot by Terry um, the Harlan and Gina disappearing like Poochie and <laughs> all the hippies all the hippies still dead everywhere so mm-hmm. very bizarre and um, and just kind of, it is kind of funny though just the general concept of like 
of like, well, we killed Andrew, so I guess everything's fine now. <laughs> Which is right. like they just walk off like literally into the sunset. I think right, like this isn't a much larger organization that is not defined by one assassin. <laughs> you know, so right. like like a Dokes is still out here. You know, and um, <laughs> so I don't know. On his it's, phone. Yeah. Oh yeah. I will say. Um, I was texting Mike about this, but I became weirdly obsessed with all the scenes with Dokes on the phone because they were filmed in such like a weird static way where it was just him like kind of holding the phone up to his to his ear and he would just deliver one line or one reaction and then it would cut back to Andrews on the other side of the phone. And he was filming it, you know, Mm. in this drab office space, wearing a suit that's too big for him, looking extremely awkward holding the phone. And it just made me think of what it would be like to be on set that day. And like the idea of shooting all these one line takes over and over again, (laughs) where it's just him just being like, yeah. And then they cut, you know, and I'm just like, because mm-hmm. he looks so awkward, like while filming those scenes. Mm-hmm. And I became weirdly obsessed with the Dokes phone scenes uh, because it just seemed mm-hmm. to me like the director being like, just, uh, you know, make a, a a reaction like you're surprised. All right. Action. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I mean, he's pretty much like, I mean, Burton, for the most part, is basically like the George Kennedy uh, to Andrews, uh, Leslie Nielsen. I mean, if we're going to make like yeah. the Naked Gun, I mean, in, in all of mm-hmm. Naked, in throughout Naked Gun, you know, as obviously Leslie Nielsen mumble bubbles his way through all these stupid misadventures. And it's always George Kennedy who comes on. And it's like, Frank, did you hear about this down from the chief's office? And he always just brings like <laughs> exposition, which is like kind of like what, um, Basil expedition is in, uh, Austin Powers. And I feel like Burton is exactly that. Like he just serves up all these serves is like, a way to like just give Andrews his next directive and then for Andrew mm-hmm. and then to be like a punching bag for Andrews. Um, like it, it's almost like not to bring Decker up again from adult swim. He's like the Kington to Decker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, he, but, uh, he does actual code breaking with that one. Scene. He does. Oh, but so. God, which by the way, we need to talk about that scene for a second. Like if, if there's any like bottle moment to summarize the 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 direct juxtaposition of emotions that they intend you to feel and you actually feel it's in that scene like it has this like quote unquote tense moment where you are supposed to be they're supposed to be like almost like subconsciously sparring on the computer to figure out like where their their coordinates are or whatever um and it is the it's so dull but they make it seem <laughs> so like like anxiety driven or like there's there's an anxiety that's like fueled into the scene that just doesn't translate whatsoever sparrow house mm-hmm. sparrow house like <laughs> good god like really bad yeah like it's basically the gif of the kid like at the computer turning to the screen and like thumbs up giving a thumbs like, up yeah mm-hmm. i love that well part of that is because of the terrible music also oh god first all right so can't take any of it seriously exactly and in that scene it's literally just the the music and i was texting randall about this from like the snl skit of schmidt's gay when it's just like (laughs) uh great house sitting gig (laughs) wait till you see the pool (laughs) like just I, I'd love to like I always whenever I think of like bad music cues I think of like the fact that there was actually a musician that was in the recording studio in Booth uh, recording this um, and so I just imagine like whoever was the musician I, let me look it up real quick it was like whoever the, the theme music compo- well actually it says David Bowie he wasn't there oh composer <laughs> Joe Taylor so Joe Taylor was in the studio and um, had to be, they had to be like all right so uh, we got the scene 
uh, the computer sparring. Uh, you got this, Joe? Uh, yep, I'm ready to go. And <laughs> just fucking fumbling on his guitar. And he got mm. probably paid more money than I'll get in a year um, <laughs> for doing mm. it. But yeah, just, oof. The music is bad. And music is yeah. really important. Like for music really contributes to like the sluggish feel of this series. Like I, I, I think of it the same way that like the score for uh, Robbie Robertson's score for The Irishman is similarly sluggish and adds to the runtime of that movie. Um, and I just felt like the plottingness of this miniseries is totally attributed to the score as well. Like nothing's mm-hmm. worse and slower than molasses than fucking blues guitar that yeah uh, <laughs> and like goofy too it's yeah. so silly that you can't take anything seriously because no. it's like am i supposed to be laughing at this i mean <laughs> or is this supposed to be like amping up the tension and like think about like the even like the you know in the first episode we talked about the dumb dolls that are in terry's office um that are very yeah. peaksian um and like they go back to that with ed louder like i guess killing time like shooting these like dolls in the office like Mm -hmm. dude you're being like fucking blackmailed against your job at this point like what are you doing playing like with dolls in your ex in your like girlfriend's office or what i expected them to pan away and there was a child in the room that he was playing with yeah it just it uh, was so bizarre um so i guess like what are your final thoughts about golden years as a whole would you if if there were another season what 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 could it have done to maybe save itself to make it into something worth watching a lot of shows you know they have rough first seasons so if the show could have kept going what would you have wanted to see from the second season that uh that maybe could have kept you interested mike what do you think i mean you already know my second season pitch i told you last night i i wanted Harlan to get younger and if they were going to go with the original ending where uh, Gina dies I want him to go and you know part of my French here just be like I'm young and I'm gonna hit the town and he just (laughs) it's just he he abandons Terry he is on he's gone totally AWOL so now you have like three separate fucking teams looking for him and he is just it's like species two in here he like he has just gone to town he's like sleeping with people left and right um He's like sleeping with older women and younger women. Uh, he's experimenting. He's like, maybe uh, maybe he wanted to cross over the other side and uh, he's uh, sleeping <laughs> with other men. He's going all over the place. Um, I would love it if like Harlan Williams was like the first pansexual character on screen. Just going off and going going all, all over the place. That would have made season two interesting and would have you could have had any other subplot. You could have had Dr. X fucking experimenting on the janitor and on another B plot secret of world of Alex. Well, maybe Mac he's making, bullshit. maybe he's making like new boner pills with like whatever yes. match. <laughs> but if, if you just had like every episode and it's just like a date of the week for Harlan Williams for mm, eight episodes mm-hmm. straight and bring him to castle rock. He goes and dates like, you know, Sarah, Johnny Smith. Like we let's go <laughs> castle rock season two. Just have him like date all the different people that are different King's Dominion characters. He goes to Castle Rock. He goes to Ludlow, Maine. He goes to fucking Jerusalem's lot and like you know it finds like you know uh, the 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 remains of Matt. Uh, I can't remember his name. The 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 fucking teacher from the Salem teacher. Park. Oh Matt. Um, you know, uh, fucks that Matt also. Matt teacher, I think. Fucks the dead body. <laughs> Oh. I, I just so you want, like you want it to turn into like hung on HBO. I want hung <laughs> slash red shoe diaries of Harlan Williams just going all over the place on network television. How do you um, even top that? Jen, what, what would your ideal second season look like? 
Well, I, again, I don't know if I can top that, but maybe he's going to go hunt down uh, Margot Martindale. Oh. They're going to find that hearse. They're going to return the body that they just <laughs> left in the field somewhere. And then maybe they can take that hearse and they start like the first ever food truck Ooh. where they like make the hot cross buns in the back of the, the hearse, you know, and um, hot cross hearse, I think is the spinoff title. Um, and then they can also like kind of go on little side missions where they reunite bodies that have been left abandoned places and try to find their loved ones. Oh man, so they're doing, like, like a that. public service. Yeah, but I I like the thought of like just hot Harlan fucking all over America <laughs> and like spawning this master race of like green children. You know? Oh man, maybe he's gonna hunt down Annie Wilkes. Oh, you, you know, know you know yeah. what the season finale is for season two. All right, so well, he finally gets kidnapped. Finally, like, one of his, uh, you know, his <laughs> dates is like, this guy is fucking weird. I've been uh -huh. with him for, like, a week. This guy is de-aging. I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm calling 1-800-THE-SHOP. And he, he <laughs> they, they catch him. And who is his cellmate but Charlie McGee? And then <gasps> it is fucking 90s, like, heroined out Drew Barrymore, like, oh, in the, the, the jail cell. And she's like... Who, what do they got you for? And then it just like cuts <laughs> the credits. Like, you know. Green fucking. <laughs> I love Third it. Third season, just setting fire to everything. And that like would be amazing. Green. And my their child would set green fire. Yes. Oh, I'd love it. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. In my second universe. season, uh, it's less horny than your guys's, but it's, <laughs> it, it explores, I think, an important wrinkle, which is uh, the hippies getting their revenge. Uh, yes. Yes. I think Harlan is taken to the shop. He's 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 you know he's under arrest, as they say. And then it's the hippies who lead the charge uh, to to uh, to gain uh, revenge for their two fallen friends. And they mm -hmm. set aside their hippie ideals, their pacifist ideals. They tie uh, bandanas around their heads. They get bazookas and stuff, and then they march in <laughs> to the shop and just blow it up. And then Harlan joins them, and then uh, and then and they. Like it's like Red Dawn. Yes. Yeah, and like CCR's Fortunate Sons playing in the background. <laughs> it's like, some folks know like just blowing shit up left and right. Mm -hmm. Peace, love, and bullets. The Gulf of Tonkin was shit, and this is shit too. You're just like, you fucking pinko motherfuckers. It's like... <laughs> I love it. So let's just say that all of our ideas are better than the first season of Golden Years, which yeah. is excruciating. Yes. Thank you so much, Jen, for watching it with us. This has been yeah, wild. Sure. I think we need to go around and give it our noses uh, just to wrap this oh. episode up. I'll start. I'm giving Golden Years one bright red Pennywise clown nose. Mm -hmm. It is really boring, not recommended, bad performances. Um, a lot of bad dialogue, a lot of bad things in general. There are a few small things that I think are interesting that might have made a good book. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, that's all the, the all the, all of that amounts to just one nose for me. So, Mike, how about you? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're to th assume that our bright red Pennywise clown noses are of the uh, the, 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 the the sponge kind, you know, like the, <laughs> the classic Bozo the Clown mm -hmm. sponge nose. And they are. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, they are the same material that's made of the aggro crag that's in Nickelodeon's guts. Um, now, if you've watched Nickelodeon's guts, you'd remember that pieces of the aggro crag would blow up and you'd have all these little, you know, bits and pieces blowing everywhere. I'm not giving this a full uh, bright red uh, Pennywise clown nose. I'm giving a 
piece of a bright red <laughs> Pennywise clown nose, very similar to the the, the pieces that would uh, would go all over the place on the set of Guts, and it's glowing green, just like Harlan Williams, uh, uh, you know, eyes or body or ever whatever we want to uh, <laughs> go with. Um, this was uh, uh, a slog. Um, a lot of interesting stuff that's here. Um, an interesting time capsule of the 90s that if you really want to be a King completist, by all means, go for it. I would recommend the DVD cut because at least it's somewhat <laughs> of a Cliff's Notes if there could ever be uh, one. If you're a completist, you can't watch the DVD. You got to watch all That's of it. That's true. You do have to watch all of it and you have to watch also the DVD cut as well. So get ready for like 11 hours of the uh, slowest uh, fucking Stephen King novel. Uh, Jen, how about you? Uh, I, okay. So it does exist as something that we can watch. So I have to give it at least half a nose for that because Mm -hmm. it did like make its way to completion. Um, and there are like tiny little seeds. I can see the effort to try to make it something good. Um, so I'm going to give it one because it, it, it exists and they tried. Yes. I think that's that's very that's very similar to your uh, preemptive review when we were talking over Twitter about it a couple weeks oh. ago. And I asked you, oh, I've, I see that you, uh, you're you on your, uh, you know, reread of All King. Have you mm-hmm. uh, indulged in golden years? And you're like, well, it was something that was watched. <laughs> yes, it exists as something. And it didn't. I, <laughs> I also sent you something else earlier today because it does make you think about like some deeper things you know Mm -hmm. like it gives you a lot to think about like love and life and the concept of time itself and like are we really wasting our lives endlessly chasing this perfect hearse while the ground crumbles beneath us only to find it was all an illusion and were we really the scarecrows all along so it asks these questions (laughs) and I mean we have to answer (laughs) here's some here's some I don't know if this is room 237 so much as just um theorizing and i can't remember if we talked about this in the first episode but i certainly mentioned it to randall over text um do you feel that this failed experiment if we want to call it that um canceled show which is what it literally is is the reason why maybe king didn't uh call the institute the shop last year like do you think this Mm. kind of poisoned the whole setting uh for him I think um, it might have, yeah. Yeah, because right? this was the last time we see the shop, right? Yeah, right? I think so. It is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm looking at Stephen King Wiki, and it literally is... I mean, I guess they say that the Arrowhead Project is, quote-unquote, uh, supposed to be involved with uh, the shop, and I guess, mm-hmm. like... And the Tommy Knockers was before this, so that could be considered, you know, considered to be uh, a part of the shop, but I guess, like... Um, I think this is the last thing. Yeah. Yeah. He killed the shop. Yeah. And I think that, I I mean, honestly, this is because pro- he's not really talked a lot about golden years. Like mm-hmm. is subsequent. I tried to find some quotes and I even found some other articles that people have done saying, yeah, this isn't something King talks about a lot. So I think this was probably, <laughs> uh, you know, something he considered probably a pretty big failure. And this was a weird time in his career. You know, mm-hmm. he was freshly sober, mm-hmm. uh, needful things, which, um, uh, was it was a you know it made money but it wasn't it was a critical reviewed. flop though. it was a critical flop it wasn't reviewed well at all and then um you know i think some of the newer i, I mean i think like wh- when did misery come out 90 uh, 1987 
Oh, I thought it was like 1990. Well, no, the movie was 1990, but okay, the book yeah. itself was like, hmm. I, th- I want to say it was 87. Let me look real quick. So but. he was having some some cinematic success around this time, but and maybe this is maybe this was kind of the beginning of, uh, you know, I think that up until The Stand, at least, there wasn't a lot of good Stephen King things kind of between no. here and then. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. He was probably in a pretty sensitive place around this time. And so the shop probably was colored for him a little bit. And uh, yeah. and his reasonings for not including the shop were, you know, it was pretty he didn't he addressed it in like, a I think, in the afterword of the Institute. I can't remember. But he basically just said he thought. Uh, I, I thought about doing it, but then I decided not to, you know, like he had some reason, but it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't an elaborate one or anything. It just sounds like it's something he just doesn't want to revisit. So I will know. say like this era that we're currently in, I, I am more interested in the context of King than the actual works that we were actually touching upon. Um, I mean, granted, that's always been my favorite part to discuss in these episodes mm-hmm. for the last three years. But this stretch particularly is very interesting because I almost see it as like. Um, like a kind of like the um, when a, a baseball player like is still playing and he's like maybe in his forties now, and he's kind of like, all right, well, I'm still in the game, but how how am I going to keep this going? How how, mm-hmm. how what am I where where am I going to go from here? And not even any baseball player, but any athlete. Um, when you think about like the later age of like what athletes do, like they kind of start pivoting into different roles on the team. And then eventually they start bleeding out into other different things. And especially if they're a successful athlete. And I feel like that's what King is doing here. And like, mm-hmm. when we look at his trajectory, like we kind of see this, like I've said this multiple times on the podcast, like it was a purge. It was a purge for him to say like, all right, this is me just getting all my greatest hits of horror out there. Um, by Pennywise being uh, a beacon of greatest hits itself because he's able to kind of, you know, be metamorphosized into different, you know, monsters and whatnot. Um, And then whatever, everything else that follows, he literally has books that deal with writer's block with deal with the, the, the sort of uh, conflicted writer um, as it is. And, and then you start getting these situations where he's kind of dabbling. And there's a quote that's in, I'm glad that you mentioned the Anthony Bresenkin interview, uh, Randall, because there was something that I wanted to bring up today. It was that like, mm-hmm. I feel like he's almost in a period like that right now um, because mm. he had a really great stretch where he was kind of leaning on the manuscripts, almost doing the John Grisham thing uh, to kick off this decade. Cause 1122 is something that he had. Uh, that was in the back burner from the 70s and the same thing with Under the Dome. And those are arguably the two strongest book that he, books that he published this year. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Not this year, this decade. Um, with the exception of, I guess, Revival. I haven't read Revival, but I know Justin considers it one of his favorite books. Uh, of um, It's good. So, and that was something that he did, obviously, that was cut from a new cloth. Um, and he kind of indulged in true crime. And I feel like he's kind of on the out. The, 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 you know, he's kind of getting away from that now and he and Mm -hmm. and i think it's telling that uh, you know if it bleeds has a story that deals with writer's block and trying to become um because a rat we'll talk about it in another episode but like the rat is a story about him trying to you know a writer um getting a a prize or you know an award for um it being a writer and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if he is in a similar period as he was during this time. Well, I'll say this about rat and this is I'll, not spoiling it, but what rat is really about is about a guy who is like writing is, 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 is not good for his mental health. Basically mm. like he is, it's not that he, uh, it's, it's about writer's block. Yes. But it's also about what, 
writer's block and uh, I don't know, self-imposed expectations and uh, a general sense of bitterness um, can wreak on sort of the mind of a writer and how writing can become a, like something that alienates you from people. You know, it's, mm. it, it doesn't mm. portray writing as sort of like this beautiful freeing thing like a lot of King's stuff does. It shows sort of a darker side of what it can do to your psyche. And so I think that that's interesting in relation to what you're saying, Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm I- like, oh, go, go for it. I was going to say, like, if we're looking at 91, this kicks off one of my favorite parts of his career Mm -hmm. because he's got he writes about so many like female characters here. And one of the things I love about Stephen King is his willingness to experiment with things, you know, Um, and part of that is because he's so prolific. And I think he just he writes so much that he's like, well, what the fuck else can I do? And because coming up, I mean, it's going to be a couple years away, but we get um, the Green Mile, which was released in installments. And Mm -hmm. then we get Desperation and um, the regular. And I think you can kind of see the end of a phase of his writing now and just kind of stalling a little bit and not knowing what to do. So if you're talking about him being in that phase right now, that really excites me because I think this may be like just the last spurts of that beginning phase of his career. And then it kickstarts into just a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm glad that uh, you're uh, you're in our quartet, uh, so to speak, Aww. or a club right now, because like. <laughs> The fact that we have someone that's like so, I mean, the, the fact that this is, you, you've said that this is like your favorite era, right? Um, it's one, yeah, it, I have a soft spot for like early King. Yeah, but yeah this is, these King are is my, my favorite. favorite characters. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see um, as he pivots because, I mean, it is telling that like the only book he released in 93 is Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Granted, that's like a tome of fucking stories, but like. Mm-hmm. As we've seen, I mean, like Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne came out in the same year. Needful Things in the Wastelands came out in the same year. Um, you know, it, it, it makes makes me wonder if, like, because of what he was doing with television, it was kind of like maybe he was kind of indulging into leaving books for a little mm-hmm. bit and mm-hmm. trying to get into television. I mean, like, I think it's fair to put this at the end of this episode because it's like, let's say that Golden Years did take off. He mm-hmm. wrote pretty much every episode on here um he did every every episode i think he co-wrote a couple of them but like let's say that this was a success do we see because he he co-wrote the first four episodes with uh joseph anderson um which is kind of telling because those episodes have a little bit more um (laughs) groundedness to it um (laughs) let's say this this was a success do we get um you know the the gerald's game of the dolores claiborne or the insomnia or the rose Mm -hmm. matter you know? I mean, I would just say that knowing his how prolific he is, we probably would. Um, mm-hmm. But I do wonder how it would have impacted the long term arc of his career. Yeah. Uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, I think that I don't know. I think I think what this era does show us is that he had a strong interest in being involved in this. You know, like, I mean, because obviously with Maximum Overdrive and then he was uh, like Misery, Stand By Me, It miniseries, all these things were happening around this time. And it was like a very lucrative time for Stephen King adaptations. And uh, Mm -hmm. that I think that it probably was an era, an area that he wanted to dabble in a bit more. And I mean, he probably always wanted to maybe, I don't know, I imagine that he probably wanted to uh, direct again to maybe make up for the, <laughs> you know, the train wreck that was Maximum Overdrive and <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe saw this as, as a means to do that again. But yeah, I mean, it is an interesting thought because uh, yeah. a lot of writers do, you know, 
pivot. Like I look at like, uh, you know, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, right. Who does uh, Riverdale and all that. Like he's a huge TV mm. mogul now, but mm-hmm. he started off as a, I believe a comic book writer and a novelist. So mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting that, you know, I think for a lot of people, they want to make that, that trip into TV, but, and you know, obviously King's never going to be at a shortage of adaptations, but I think maybe he wanted to be more uh, intimately involved with it, but, but he's going to yeah. get to with Lisey's story. I mean, he wrote every script for that one. So, mm-hmm. Well, what 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 I've what I'm interested in in creating here with this arc as we're in the '90s is that there is a line of demarcation, um, mm-hmm. you know, with with Shawshank Redemption getting nominated for what was I, I think like seven Academy Awards in '95. Mm-hmm. It didn't win any of them, but like the fact that it was nominated brought King to a different echelon at that point, and we're only uh, three books or four books away from that. Three books, technically, because I guess Rose Matter came out the same year. So mm-hmm. we're only like three books away from that period. And I feel as if we're going to probably discuss about how, what that did to transform like Stephen King from the master of horror to best-selling American author, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like there's this weird, like a lot of his early stuff is external horror, you know, and mm-hmm. then it's almost like he gets into this more internal or like domestic horror where he really like explores the minute horror of things from like within yourself you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. and also is this where we start to kind of see the world building and I know that like in the early books he'd have like characters coming from different towns and he'd like mention Martin and um, and we have seen Castle Rock, but this is where, like, you've got Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's game, which are connected and, like, spiritually connected. Right. And then I think this is when, like, the Dark Tower kind of mm-hmm. starts to explode into, like, pulling other things in. And so if he's kind of looking at TV and, like, longevity and, like, building, like, his own universe, I think maybe this is kind of where this starts to kick off a little Oh, bit. absolutely. Yikes. I mean, the fact that the Wastelands pretty much kicks off the, the decade in 91 and that's ostensibly the I'm trying to remember, but like I'm pretty sure the Wastelands is the the first real book of the Dark Tower where you actually start getting threads of his other books in it because that's the one where you actually start seeing the stand um, mm-hmm. or like glimpses of the stand, and you're like, oh shit, this is actually supposed to be linked together. And then you also get like Jake, um, who you know who's part of the the you know the world with like the the, the world of fiction with Calvin's. Uh, you know, um, bookstore and that gets a little meta in there. So like it almost, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think he really does start getting like more intuitive to who Stephen King is in the realm of pop culture. And this Mm -hmm. in in the nineties, it's in in a way it's almost like, and we'll probably talk about this book by book of throughout the, his, his nineties run over the next couple of years. But like, I feel like he gets, um, he comes, he makes peace with who Stephen King is in the pop culture lexicon in this decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel that now, like, I feel like he knows who he is now and he's not doing the try hard thing anymore. And maybe this is when it's like, okay, this isn't going to work. Maybe I have to start thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it goes back to the new sobriety too. You know, Mm -hmm. he's like exploring who he is as a writer without drugs and drinking, you know, and that's a scary place to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Man, really interesting chat. Uh, it's fun. Yeah, that, it's turned out great. I know it's funny that yeah. uh, that golden years can trigger these sort of uh, more in depth <laughs> looks at King, which I love. But yeah, this was mm-hmm. fun. Uh, we're through golden years, thank Christ. Uh, we're going to be Ooh, back yeah. next week with the stand and um, a capsule review of 
if it bleeds, I almost said if it sleeps, but if it if bleeds. It sleeps. Um, <laughs> if it and, sleeps is the golden year spin-off. Yes. And so, well, we all, if it sleeps, yes, we do during golden years. Um, and <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so this was fun. Uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, again, check out our uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash the Barons. Hit us up on our socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the good stuff. Listen to the horror version, Jen's podcast through the Ooh. Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, and also Halloweenies, Mike other podcast with the uh, consequence podcast network and maybe one day i'll be on an episode uh you're gonna be on that <laughs> and i'm pretty sure it's gonna be one that involves uh george mcfly and if you know who <laughs> george mcfly is uh he played another role uh by the name of willard and if you know willard you know that he was also in a movie called nurse betty and i'm talking about crispin glover so it's true i love crispin glover i have much crispin knowledge glover. to bring to that episode so looking forward <laughs> to that and uh looking forward to uh seeing all you constant listeners online we love to chat with you so i think it's time to say goodbye Long days and pleasant, and pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. Bye, y'all. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you Consequence Podcast Network.